Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Ryder. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Here we are, James, back again with another Do More Good podcast. It's episode 90. How are you doing? Kenneth. Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Nice to see you. What have you been up to? Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while. A couple of weeks. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I've just been just been busy with life, like I think we all have, having young children and having jobs and and all of this stuff that just gets in the way of living our best lives or allowing us to live our best lives. So yeah, no, just been nice and busy. Had a little bit of time off work, not been feeling too great recently. So that that kind of got in the way of a few things. But COVID's still around as well, isn't it? Oh, uh, getting yeah. kids off blooming school left, right, and centre. I don't know whether it's COVID. 2.0 or whatever COVID it is or colds or flu or season whatever. Season six, season yeah. six, the finale, yeah. you're going to love it. You're exactly. Love it. Come to that. Yeah, exactly. So there's been lots of that around, but yeah, I'm okay. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, fine. Similar to you, actually. I went away, I went away for like a long weekend, went to a wedding and as we left, the COVID numbers were X and when we came back, they were Y, like way higher, raced up uh, in this borough. But yeah, I went to Dublin for a wedding. And um, it turns out nothing marks you out more as a tourist than post ceremony going to the bar and ordering a Guinness. Because I thought I'll camouflage myself, I'll mix in and they can't hear my accent and I'll order a Guinness. Apparently that just marks you out as a tourist. (laughs) Uh, But it was very good fun. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Had a few of those. I seem to spend six or seven hours on the dance floor. Wow. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I used both my moves um sometimes simultaneously but loved it it was really good it was a really good weekend nice to get away six or seven hours on the dance floor multiple pints of guinness and two dance moves i mean that sounds like a feature film i've ever heard (laughs) well like you said living my best life oh good well look it's good to be back again because it's as i say it's been a it's been a little while and we've got some uh I know we've been a bit quiet on the old podcast front, obviously, because I've been been away for a, for a little while, but um, I'm really excited to hear from our guest. I think it's just one of those ones where you're researching away and you find all these little tidbits of information and knowledge they've got across their careers. Do you want to do the intro this week or shall I, shall I go okay. and do it? You do it. Go on. It's tradition for you. to. Do yeah. It. OK, yeah. well, we'll crack on because our, our guest is patiently waiting and he has a, uh, a, a date with a theatre later on. So we don't want to keep him up too long. So our guest this week started his career in the charity sector straight from university, taking on the elected role of communications and commercial director at Warwick University Student Union, where he developed his style for communication and ability to influence and build products in a digital world. Following a year in post, he then joined the third sector with a post at the Variety Club Children's Charity, helping the organisation diversify its income streams through new communication channels. 
After two years at Battersea Dogs and Cats Home as the branding and digital manager, he then joined CRUK in 2012, where he got to work with and lead teams of digital managers, helping the charity achieve ambitious goals to beat cancer sooner. And then in 2016, he joined William Joseph as their director of digital. Now, thanks to William Joseph's focus on the charity sector, our guest is able to see multiple perspectives on the same challenges that charitable organisations face day to day. By running a small specialist team, he stays close enough to the detail to provide solutions that actually work while spotting patterns for successful strategies. And when he's not supporting charities to create and develop digital experiences, he can be found crowdfunding vinyl releases through his project Vinylized and contributing to many industry groups to support the next generation of digital experts in the charity sector. And we're really pleased to welcome James Gadsby-Pete to the Do More Good podcast. Hello, James. How are you doing? Good, thanks, folks. How are you doing? Yeah, we're good, thank you. We're good. Um, sorry for that whole kerfuffle that we'd just spout at the beginning there. It's always embarrassing when our guests sit there and we're just spouting off. Apologies about that one. No, no, it was lovely. It was like sitting next to a couple of guys chatting in a pub who haven't seen, <laughs> you know, earwigging on the conversation. Very yeah, exactly. James, look, brilliant to have you on. As we touched on in the intro there, I mean, you've got some fantastic experience that we'd love to delve into. You know, we like to, I think, through the podcast, give others in the sector that may be at a different point to ourselves or to our guests kind of inspiration and, and share some learning that they've taken from their career experience. But just going back to the start, I mean, I touched on there, you worked at Warwick University after your degree, but where did the, the, the move to the charity sector? And can you just talk us through your early career? Yeah, sure. I've heard lots of people on this podcast and plenty of others kind of say it was a career that I fell into. I'm sure that's a cliche these days. I know people like the Chartered Institute of Fundraising would love for that not to be the case and for, you know, uh, universities, schools, all the rest of it to think of especially fundraising, well, not especially fundraising, fundraising as an example as a real career that, you know, people aim at from a young age. That was certainly not the case for myself. As you say, I was at Warwick actually studying engineering the first thing I learned about engineering was I didn't want to be an engineer, which is a bit of a problem when you've got <laughs> years ahead of you. <laughs> um, my parents certainly thought it was an issue. Uh, so I got really involved in the student union and was doing a lot of communications stuff, marketing stuff for them. You know, that <laughs> all sounds very whatever. It realistically was handing out a lot of flyers for student union kind of services and gigs and stuff. But joking aside, I genuinely enjoyed the kind of engaging with people, communicating with lots of different points of view. Warwick Student Union, like so many places, is just a melting pot of madness. Like it's, you walk past someone dressed as an elf and then you go into a club night with like, you know, soul wax playing and then you've got, you know, the advice and education stuff happening in the side of it. So, you know, it really covers so much of it. And I just really, I really enjoyed it. Really got engaged with it. So, yeah, as you said, I got elected as what's called a SAB officer, where you basically get paid to stay on for a year after university and act like a student, but have a proper job and almost a proper salary, which was... Does the elf costume come with that, or do you have to pay that separately? Uh, it was kind of on a retainer type thing, I think, below <laughs> a deposit for it. Um, yeah, <laughs> honestly, there were all kinds of costumes all the time. It was about the... Do you remember, you know, there was that Cadbury's Dairy Milk ad where there was a guy dressed as a gorilla um, yeah. 
one of oh the, the Phil Collins one yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. My, my greatest memories of my mate Craig sat sat in the middle of a three thousand person venue on stage dressed as a gorilla trying to get the timing right for the start of the Phil Collins song which of course he missed by four beats it was <laughs> all in the name of work it was fantastic what's well, not to love about a career doing that kind of stuff many community fundraisers might yeah oh yeah that sounds familiar right yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so anyway, I mean, I'd say all that kind of stuff was exciting. It was also just at the point when, you know, digital communications was really starting to come into its own. So, you know, Facebook, social media, email, websites, people were starting to take that seriously. And so that was obviously a natural area that I ended up focusing on as communications uh, officer, also on the commercial development side of things from selling tickets to gigs or, you know, the bars and entertainments. That was that was becoming a bigger and bigger part of it. So I always say it was like a very, I was very fortunate to be able to have that year. It was a real crash course in like a whole heap of professional skills, which I definitely wouldn't have got otherwise and set me up really, really well for what I've been doing since. I, so from there, I, I went, moved to London, started at the Variety Club, which for those that don't know, is kind of a fairly old children's charity. A lot of, done a lot of work in the entertainment industry for years, like, you know, mm. They had this amazing archive of images of, you know, like Frank Sinatra doing kind of variety club stuff in like the 40s and 50s, um, basically. And they they fund loads of kids services, kids and young people services in particular. They have the Sunshine Coaches that kind of take kids around from various different, you know, youth groups or whatever it might be. So that was, again, a really fortunate position to be in to get involved in such an exciting kind of established charity. It was going through a lot of change at the time. And one of the first jobs I had was to rebuild their website. And it really, I still think back on it today, really showed me how digital projects, especially websites, just can cause so much, can be so complicated for organizations because it's often the only time an organization has to act like a single organization. Yeah. opposed to just a collection of teams, you know, navigation isn't going to make sense if you don't, you know, think about all of the different audiences and what everybody needs. Likewise with any of the information architecture or user journeys you're trying to design. Back in those days, we weren't talking about it like that. It was just a really difficult thing to get people kind of moving forward, but again, it was um it was an exciting project and learned a lot from it. Um certainly like when you talk about the student union stuff that you did and you you made that connection with particularly with community fundraising of building relationships and promoting products that really fits and those skills would really come through. And then you dive straight into digital then back in, would would this have been around 2010-ish? Yeah, right. What did digital look like then? You talk about websites there, but Facebook maybe taking off at that point and growing? Um, Only just Facebook was, you know, something that you thought about at uni to add your photos to. You didn't have any conversations about it at work that I remember. I remember when I was at Battersea, which is the job I went to next, you know, paying an agency to try and make some of our pages work on mobile phones. You know, it was just, yeah, it was a different world. It was all desktop based. It was all much more broadcast. There was no kind of two-way dialogue or communication or engagement. Yeah. Yeah, it was much more kind of stand somewhere and just throw information out into the world and hope that it was hope that it would stick somewhere that the level of investment wasn't there you know things like online donations were still super niche variety club did loads of events i remember having to fight tooth and nail to get like online tickets to to be a thing like for people to be able to buy online and like everyone getting really annoyed about the credit card 
fees that were around at the time. You know, they were like 250 quid tickets and we were getting charged five, 10% credit card fees on them. People went nuts about it. They were like, why are we doing this? This is just losing us money. This will never catch on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 TBC, it might do, but yeah, at the time it was, (laughs) yeah. Just thinking back to that time, James, there must have been a few of these occasions. And I think we're all of a kind of similar similar generation as we've grown up uh, through kind of the evolution of digital over the last, whatever, 25 years. I mean, James and I still refer to it as new media as it was for a little <laughs> while back then, uh, which I think is quite funny to, to reflect on. But you must have had some interesting meetings as a time. I'm sure quite quickly you became the expert for anything digital in any of those organisations. Is there anything that kind of sticks in your mind when someone said, when you maybe raised the raised the point that you think, oh, maybe we should look at this or we should consider this, and someone in the organisation said, no, that will that will never work. We don't want to, We don't need to be doing that. There must be a few of those trends that you'd maybe spotted, but someone else didn't buy into. Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, where I went next, that was just such a. It was so at the forefront of so many of those conversations. To be honest, right. there was lots that didn't stick and lots that did. But, you know, cats and dogs on the internet is not the hardest thing. I was going to say, like, cat gifts. Did they see the potential of cat gifts? Well, I mean, I look back on it and wish I know what I know now. (laughs) You couldn't fail, though, that being said. I mean, yeah, we were learning things and it actually was being proven to be quite successful quite quickly. So, yeah, there were those conversations about, well, why are we going to invest in this? Why are we going to spend money on Facebook ads or, you know, whatever, creating content for it? And, mm. yeah, there were plenty of people who couldn't, who didn't see it. And, to be honest, you know, I'd love to say that I had all of the expertise at the time. I were like, yeah, this is definitely going to be a thing, folks. I, I didn't have that. I had, I had some instincts and hunches like all of us, but, yeah, we didn't know. But because of that kind of content, we just got so much insight so quickly and people, mm. you know, it, you just put the numbers next to, say, a door drop campaign versus the kind of numbers that we were able to mm. achieve on Facebook for free at that time as well. You know, this is before organic uh, reach fell off a cliff. This, you know, you're getting 10, 20,000 views of every image you're putting up of a cute kitten or puppy for no money other than sending me down to the cattery with a camera. I mean, like that, it's hard to argue against that kind of stuff in those in those early days so you know it was it was an exciting time it's, I, i'm no less excited about the opportunities now it's just you know they're they're all different and there are some things that have matured and then there are some things that are popping up and doing you know doing things that people haven't seen before tiktok being the obvious example in the social media side of things but you know that mm. that as a platform will mature and it'll be a different conversation as you know all these things keep coming and going yeah and I get yeah, your mate getting ten thousand views of him in a gorilla suit in the middle of a club, obviously getting uh, you know big numbers there. And also, I guess that's the beginning of when we were able to analyze who was looking at things, and we were really able to see that. Now, now it's just the norm that we expect to be able to have that data and be able to analyze it. Back then, it was a whole new thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I was lucky enough to work at Batsy when people like Liz Tate were starting the fundraising team there. And actually, it yeah, there was plenty of um, disagreements across all organizations, as there are across all organizations, but because of Liz and a lot of her team's background in um, kind of quite direct fundraising, they, you know, as soon as you get into data, as soon as you start getting into analytics, as I say, it made the arguments for us very, very quickly. It was just obvious mm. what, what the places to invest were. Mm. And then you had the move to, to CRUK. Was this... I mean, I'm sure at the time, and, and like now, CRUK, one of the most well-known charities in, in the world, probably. 
what was that like for you? I mean, applying for that job, maybe going to join an organization, was there was that a target organization for you or did it just happen organically that you that you ended up there? How did that transition happen? Yeah, it happened really organically. I wasn't particularly looking to move on from Battersea, but a rock, basically my role at Battersea was very broad, as you could as you, from what we discussed, it was kind of mm. online online and offline. A lot of the brand stuff had nothing to do with digital at the time. And there was a role that came up at Cancer Research as like a kind of digital marketing specialist, which was just really interesting to me at the time as from what we were just discussing. You know, I mean, like digital it was obviously where all the interesting things were happening. So, yeah, that was why I joined, really. And it was really, to be honest, it was really intimidating. It was really, really scary going to, I don't know if you've been, but there's a massive building in Angel and it's like, you know, six stories tall and it looks like, you know, the Death Star from the outside and yeah, <laughs> massive piece of art in the middle of it. And I think I literally walked in there having been a bassy in the morning covered in cat hair. And I was like, yeah, these guys are definitely going to see through me right away. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it, I often think about it as having somewhere in Batsy where I had like a very broad role and across a lot of kind of subject matters or whatever it was, whereas at uh, Cancer Research, certainly to begin with, I went into a very focused and kind of much more specialist kind of in-depth role, which was really, as I say, really exciting. And when you, when you get into a place like that, the scale is just, I still you know, rarely see it even today, you know, like the number of email like addresses that they had when I joined was like, you know, they had like 3 million people on their database, whereas Batsy was like 40,000, you know, it's just that kind of stuff. And then it gets really exciting and interesting what you can do with that. And, you know, they have budget to test things, you know, it's, yeah, it was, it was really intimidating and really exciting in equal measure, I suppose. And I was very lucky that I got to, got to do it and then it kind of developed from there. I do often hear them described as a kind of separate entity to the rest of the charity sector because they are so much bigger that, you, I don't know, you go to a presentation by them and people don't have that budget or they don't have the three million people on the database, etc. Would that be true from the inside that it does feel like it's a different in a different league, perhaps, to other to other charities? Um, I think it's definitely very different. I really, and I think for a while, they were far too closed in to the rest of the sector. They just didn't engage with it. They felt that they were quite special and, well, what have we got to learn from anyone else, which I think is completely wrong. And I think actually over my time there, I think I saw a bit of a shift to wanting to try and share a bit more what they were seeing and learn more from what other people are doing. Yeah, there's no doubt that they've got a whole bunch of um, opportunities that others don't, but they've also got a whole, they can learn so much from the people who are perhaps a little more nimble or able to, you know, set up stuff um, a bit more quickly and, and learn and learn quicker. So yeah, it did feel like that a little bit. I would hope over the time we kind of change that to be a bit more engaging, but I'm, you know, I'm not that close to them these days anymore. I don't know how much that's carried on. They've obviously had a lot of changes over the, over the years. So, you know, it might be different again. Yeah. Yeah. And James, what was it? What, how did you view your career at at that time? Were you kind of just on a a path and you were just kind of see where it was going or were you, were you kind of trying to actively grow your skills and and network outside of your day-to-day role? Just again, thinking about that person who might be listening, that's thinking, oh, you know, James has got to, you know, he's now director of digital for a a well-known agency. What, what, what was that experience like for you and any kind of tidbits or advice you'd give to others? I think I've always been quite lucky in that I do like talking to people and mm. like engaging with folks from lots of different kind of perspectives or backgrounds or that, like 
all the way back to Warwick standing handing out flyers. I genuinely think that really did give me a whole bunch of skills that then allowed me to speak to lots of different folks no matter what, what our kind of uh, contexts are. The thing that I am very grateful that I did at Cancer Research was use that as a platform, as a way to go and speak to other people, you know, yeah. whether that is speaking at a conference or whether that's going to speak to another charity or just meeting people. Yeah, everyone's kind of interested to talk to you when you work at Cancer Research UK or, I mean, a lot of the charities. I don't think it's specific to them. So, yeah, I'd, it, I'd love to say it was a planned maneuver. It definitely wasn't. I just kind of ended up chatting to lots of folks about stuff that I found interesting and mm. kind of now I look back on it as building a network that I still to this day, you know, use in all kinds of way, ways, but you know, it was more luck, more by luck than design, but mm -hmm. anyone who's thinking about it, absolutely. If you're in a charity, just keep, just talk to people, no matter who you, what, what charity, what size you are, just build that network because you never know what kind of opportunities, what kind of abilities you're going to have to help people and vice versa, what kind of abilities they're going to have to help you. And like it is, all about people everything like we might come up this is a kind of recurring theme like these big organizations that there isn't any such thing as CIUK it's just a mm -hmm. collection of people who come together and are kind of uh, trying to achieve a certain goal and that's true across like the whole industry and that's the bit that for me is exciting but I think often the bit that people sometimes forget at the beginning of the career they just focus mm -hmm. on skills and like experience and job titles and how much am I getting paid actually if you spend as much time thinking about who could I meet? What kind of perspectives could I hear that I'm not hearing in my day to day? What kind of meetups can I get out to? What kind of communities can I join online? People can I meet in all the different ways that's now possible, especially with you know, the move to more digital channels. That's the stuff that I, as I say, was very lucky to do a lot of at CIUK and that still to this day is, is extremely helpful to me. A hundred is there is there higher than a hundred percent agree? But yes, absolutely. And I think Kenneth would probably agree with this as well that the way that Kenneth and I have gone about our careers is all about making friends with people and chatting to them and presenting and like we did some stuff with the chairing the EMF and increasing our networks there and Kenneth was always keen that's how we met through that um, and he would always be quite keen to come to the bar afterwards and chat to people uh, and if you ever want like if you massively want to increase your network set up a podcast and then it gives you the opportunity to call anyone you want in the sector we often talk about that being a real benefit of just calling somebody up with any excuse you can just to have a bit of a chat and see see what they're up to. Yeah, I think it's a great thing, though, isn't it, about the, the charity sector? And I'm sure we'd all agree with. There's just the the amount of support. I remember when I got my first role at Alzheimer's Research UK, and I was quite late at this. This was I was in my late twenties, maybe early thirties, and didn't know anything about fundraising. I don't know how I got the job, to be honest. Um, but you know, I I literally contacted. I think I went to the London Marathon Expo. And walked around and spoke to every person on the stand and got, you know, numbers and email addresses. And then I went along to the EMF and I like, met everybody and went. And I remember Cancer Research UK, Catherine was there at the time. And she, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Catherine Harrell, I think it is, um, <laughs> you know, met up with me for a coffee, like really kind of took me through everything I needed to know. And it was just amazing. It was the best induction ever. I've never asked someone, do you fancy a cuppa and them said no no it doesn't happen it just uh, it doesn't i mean all of that though i'm as i said i'm very privileged to have a relatively extroverted personality and I correct yeah people. i do genuinely think now there are more ways to do that if that isn't something that you're so comfortable with i think it's often seen as uh like you know you're happy to go and just chat to anyone on the street or at an expo even that you know that's an intimidating environment for a lot of people i do think now 
Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, virtual virtual networks, all the rest of it. I think that's hopefully open, being a bit more equalized to other t personality types and tendencies because that I, that would be the best. Like, you know, it's it's easy to go to an CIO event and you know the same people do tend to be at the bar and everyone is quite extroverted and quite often a man and looking have similar you know backgrounds to some of us perhaps and that's that, that is a good thing that's a great network but it, we want to try and expand that we want to try and get as many people to be able to have that privilege of having connections um mm. by looking at it, at it in different ways i think yeah yeah okay so how how did your network help you get the next move then off to william joseph yeah well so um Again, I really wasn't looking to leave cancer research. It was actually going really well and I was really enjoying it. I had kind of been tasked with a new part of their digital transformation. Um, but Chris and Steph, the two guys who set up William Joseph, I'd actually worked with at Variety Club a little bit and then worked with them loads at Batsy Dogs and Cats Home. They were their kind of incumbent design agency and they were doing all the magazines and I used to be the editor of the magazine. So we would, you know, being chasing dogs around Batsy Park, trying to get the perfect photo and all that kind of stuff. So I knew I knew the I knew the two of them really well. They've basically been doing kind of more offline graphic design for the for about ten years by that point, and we're seeing, you know, this internet thing looks like it might be might be a big deal. Really, what the driver for them was all the interesting chat uh, problems were being solved through digital so they wanted to get into that and they approached me and I don't think I I definitely wasn't looking to join an agency I wouldn't I'd never even thought about it as a career move um, until they kind of approached me to it but because I knew them and I knew the culture that I was going into it was a that was that was a big a big driver of it for me I'd always been a bit wary of agencies if I'm honest like you hear lots of stories about people working a lot of hours and for not a lot of money and you know it being quite an intense environment but knowing the way that William Joseph started and the culture that they had it as I say it made it, it made it more uh, an easier move the other thing as well like just complete luck serendipity whatever you want to call it like I don't think I would have made that move but my my dad died that year like right around the same time and if you've ever lost anyone who's that close to you just kind of throws everything up in the air and I, I'm a relatively risk averse person normally um and as I say I'm not sure I would have made the move if that hadn't happened but you know it's just how these things kind of work out and as I say it's as much luck much more luck than design generally mm -hmm. and you've obviously been there now six years right so you've you obviously thrived the organization's grown um I mean I'd heard of William Joseph but why don't you just certified B Corp as well be good just to hear the the background where you specialize and kind of what's what's your USP and as you say <laughs> quite a, a broad you know agency market that work with with the charity sector yeah absolutely so as I say they started off 15 years ago 16 years ago as kind of straight graphic design doing a lot of support and magazines all that kind of stuff um Steph and Chris set it up both the month they each had their first child because they wanted to have a much more work-life balance than was available to them. They were both working at big agencies like Saatchi and Imagination. And back then, perhaps even now, the idea of leaving to go and pick up your kid or get home for bath time was like laughed out the room. So they both set it up in order to, uh, in order to have that kind of relationship with their kids and their partners and all the rest of it, which is amazing. That's why it's called William and Joseph. That's the name of their first kids each. Ah, oh, nice, nice. So, 
so yeah, so like that kind of equality has always been at the heart of what they do, I suppose. Now, as I say, we've moved, we do almost exclusively kind of digital and branding work. So we'll be creating a lot of inclusive products and services for charities of most sizes. So that might be a website with a donation platform, event sign up, all of that kind of stuff. Or it could be more of a content-led product, like we've been working with Student Minds and their Student Space product to support students over the pandemic, that kind of thing. Um, but what what holds it all together is that thread of inclusivity, equality. We genuinely think the world would be a better place if all the digital products that are made at the moment, and there are a lot of them being made, had mm. more focus on being accessible to everybody as opposed to you know just the specific groups which in the past I think we're learning have been uh, more prioritized than maybe is ideal so that's 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 the aim the B Corp thing I think is the latest illustration of mm. that sense of purpose or those values I suppose so if anyone hasn't heard of it B Corps are kind of a new legal entity in effect that are mandated to balance people purpose and profit so it's still a still a business it's not a charity but you have to be run in a way that means that you make decisions considering all of those things. So you can't just be focused on making as much money as possible, which is just as well, because we never were. You wouldn't set up a charity focused agency if that was your plan, I can assure you. So, yeah, but it's really it's it's helped us in so many ways explore and understand better about what we could do better. Frankly, we've always worked with clients who are doing amazing things in the world. But the stuff that I'm most excited about is how we've looked at our at the team, how we operate as a team, how we recruit people into the team, how we, um, you know, just how we promote equality in everything that we do as a as a group, as much as everything that we do for our clients. It's um, yeah, it's been a really exciting yeah, thing to be a part of over the last few years. It it's, feels it's, like it comes up a lot here, the B Corp thing that yeah, we talk yeah. to, to organisations quite a lot. As Fleury was talking about it before in a previous episode. I'm, like Tony mm. Chuck Lonely are good guys, aren't they? That that kind of purpose-driven uh, ethos that runs through. It must be attractive to people. Obviously, it's come in since you joined. Yeah. But do you think if you were, if, obviously, you never think about going anywhere else. But would you only now go to a B Corp? Would it only, you know, does that does that matter to you as part of the organisation? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, w- I wouldn't work for an organisation that wasn't purpose driven. I mean, I don't, I don't think you have to be a B Corp to be purpose driven, but yeah. yeah, I wouldn't ever want to work somewhere that was just selling toothpaste for, to make like, more money. I, I, and I kind of, I actually realised that relatively early on, like I was very lucky and William Joseph really fit within that. But yeah, and it, it, you're absolutely right. It is a big thing. You know, we we do, we're doing a lot of recruitment at the moment. We're very lucky to be growing a little bit. You know, we're a digital focused agency. Uh, we make a lot of digital things. There's not a lot of other things left to make anymore. So, you know, you, if you're not growing in that environment, then you're probably doing something um, you might want to look at yourself. Um, and, you know, we're hiring people and we do tend to get more applications than most from what I, other agencies I speak to. You know, we had a junior developer role where we had like 45, 50 applicants with all, all of like a really good quality. And I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that you do stand out a little bit. People can understand a little bit more. And all those privileges I had from knowing Chris and Steph before joining, you know, I think a lot of people see that, see the B Corp mark as a shorthand to know that they are going into an environment, which is a lot more based around equality because there were plenty of more traditional agencies where that just isn't the case. You know, you have very powerful people at the top of it and, you know, people paid very little money at the bottom of it who are doing all the work and, you know, the margins go up through it. So, yeah, Mm. you know, we're very lucky to be a part of it. Um, It's something we've really focused on. I think it's, as I say, pushed us to be better 
which is again that that's one of the main reasons to to do it for me it, they always say and it's the kind of soundbite that <laughs> you would expect from someone like b corp it's the beginning of the journey as opposed to the end when you get certified but i really am actually really seeing how that is true you know as we do grow the organization we're now focusing ourselves on improving our b corp score in everything that we do you know we have a strategic role a kind of internally facing role and their job is right in two years when we recertify we want to get a higher score not just for the sake of getting a higher score but we know that if we're doing that better we'll be being run better and we'll be you know we'll, we'll be a more impactful organization so yeah mm. it, it, it's a good thing it's kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week so i'm going to let you know that you can follow us on twitter and instagram at do more good pod or if you're a professional business person you can find us on linkedin too there's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. I'm just wondering, James, you spoke a lot about equality and it sounds like it kind of runs through obviously the, the B Corp status, but it, it runs through the organisation maybe pre-B Corp as well. Just wondering how that manifests itself, because obviously there's a lot of businesses that are talking about equality um, and obviously it's been quite rightly put at high up on the agenda. But how can you give some practical examples of maybe what you do that maybe an agency that's sitting in the traditional world, for example, may not do? Yeah, there's a, few, there's a few. I mean, I think recruitment is an area that I'm really proud of the changes we've made over the last couple of years. So um, if she hasn't been mentioned or on the podcast already, there's a lady called Tess Cooper from an organization called Collaborative Future, who we've worked with for a couple of years, who is frankly brilliant and is far better placed to talk about equality and equity than I am. But she's helped us really see how, you know, how unequal and a power dynamic something like a recruitment situation is. So, you know, mm someone who doesn't know a lot about you is coming in and you've got a huge amount of power because you potentially can give them the job. I mean, it's almost one of the most powerful situations, biggest power imbalances you could find. So we've done things like simple stuff, like not asking for CVs um, at the recruitment stage because CVs really, they really overvalue past experience and place, you know, if everyone sees Amazon on the CV and they're like, ooh, you've worked at Amazon or Facebook. And it's like, ooh, yeah. But there's all kinds of privileges and inequality that mean certain types of people end up working for Amazon and Facebook. Not exclusively, of course, but, you know, if you look at it at a general level. So, yeah, if you can focus more on competence-based questions at that very early stage, you're removing some of that inequality. Things like share, uh, paying people for their time when they're interviewing or completing tasks again it should kind of now that we're doing it, it and you know it is becoming more standardized but it hasn't been for a long time so you know that again makes it more accessible or less unequal for people mm -hmm. who can't afford to take a day to write a new business plan for your fundraising uh, for your fundraising uh, strategy or whatever it might be and then other stuff like sharing questions beforehand it just it's a small thing but it equalizes that power imbalance and it means people who aren't as good at thinking on their feet have just as good an opportunity uh, to succeed in that scenario as as others who you know really thrive on that mm -hmm. um, on that scenario. Interestingly, Tess has been saying the last couple of months she's actually had some feedback from some people, especially people maybe with ADHD, that they pr would prefer to choose not to have the questions because if they have the questions, then they're going to think about nothing else for the next <laughs> year. Right, yeah. So actually, we've learned <laughs> now that it, you want to give it a choice to have the questions if people want them but they don't have to but um yeah. but yeah it's those kind of practical things which before working with someone like Tess I hadn't I it, you know I 
I know a lot about it now, but I didn't have any of those, any idea about that, you know, CIUK or anywhere I've been, you just go through those standard recruitment practices where, you know, you just accepted that that inequality, that slightly weird feeling about the whole thing was normal and natural, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, we did. We did have a look at that. It's on your Twitter feed is where you're sharing those three questions that you ask people instead of a CV. Just answer these three simple questions. And I totally agree. Um, I hadn't considered ADHD, but um, sharing the themes for a, for a conversation. It always strikes me as being really mad that the bigger things that you do in life. So let's say you're buying a house. You base buying a house, not off living in a house, but for a 30 minute wander <laughs> around where you're possibly offered an awkward cup of tea and then you leave. And it's totally depends on whether or not you could smell bread in the house at that period of time. And an interview, like you're going to spend seven and a half hours a day doing something and we base that on something totally different a totally different experience which is an interview where you're being fired questions yeah. and you have to remember experiences and relate it back to your strengths and weaknesses there's nothing to do with the job that you're ended up going to do so yeah the more that we can change and we're trying to adapt and, sh- and make that interview far more of a conversation than um than it has been let's say in the in the past it makes much more sense I think it really helps. Like traditionally, it's only marginally better than that um, TV show where you turn up and decide whether to marry someone after like meeting them for five minutes, right? Like just bored. Yeah, it's kind of. Like, I thought you were going to yeah. talk about naked attraction there, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> That's where my mind went to when you talked about a TV yeah. show. Sorry about that. Yeah, Not sure what that meant. About you than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up with with Kenneth having I mean, to wander around. Poor old Kenneth wandering around London Marathon Expo, asking for induction meetings. He's got <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, James, we'd like to talk a little bit. Um, you know, while we've still got you, and again, I know that you you we don't want to keep you on for too long, but just about kind of trends that you guys are seeing in this digital era. Like we know we've been through the last twenty months, twenty four months, however long it's been. God, we've lost lost count, haven't we? Where you know a lot of organisations decided to embrace digital maybe more than they had before. That's not to say that they weren't doing that before. I think it just had to escalate. Um, and we're getting to this kind of new new era. I know there's loads of technologies that people are kind of talking about in terms of the metaverse and what's coming down the line. But just the kind of here and now in terms of kind of 2022, the rest of the year, is there any kind of interesting ideas that you're seeing manifest or, or, or conversations that you're having with your clients that are perhaps trends for maybe later this year or, or the next couple of years? Um, so I'll give a slightly annoying answer to that first. I, my, I, a few, but it kind of doesn't matter what I think about any of this. In my opinion, if every pound that was spent on digital transformation or any of these other buzzwords that agencies like us push around was spent on user research and user insight, you wouldn't have to ask idiots like me what are the trends. You'd be speaking to the people that actually matter, which is your supporters or the people using your services. So that for me, whenever we're going into any of these kind of conversations with people, I just we just ask them to please build up the user research, user insight capabilities of your teams because and, and get it into your teams. Yeah, there's there's always going to be a great use for external perspectives, external facilitation. I'm more of a proponent now of that than I ever was, unsurprisingly. But I really, really think that if you can build user research into your just way standard way of working across the organization. So, you know, from the most junior member all the way to the CEO, then you're not going to have to worry about listening to podcasts or reading blog posts. You're going to find out the things that actually matter for you, for the people that you really care about. Um, and for me, that, that kind of leads on to the, the trend we are seeing, which is just people getting more uncertain, more 
more comfortable with uncertainty because if the last couple of years has taught us anything. None of us know what the heck is going to happen next. And that is kind of scary if you're set up in a particular way, but if you set up your organization and your people across their skills, their processes, their tools in another way, you can react, you can react quicker. You can build more foundational, whether that is technologies or processes that then allow you to spin up new ideas, new fundraising products, new virtual campaigns, whatever it might be, um, much, much faster. So that, that's kind of, those are the two sort of enablers, I think, that we would see that we would be pushing people to spend more on. The other area that we're, we're talking to people about constantly, and this isn't even anything new, but I think it's been accelerated by the last couple of years, is the integration across all of the different parts of charities. We all know people have been on podcasts and blog posts on uh, conference circuits saying it for a hundred years no one cares how your organization is set up whether it's fundraising services policy over here they have to have a connected experience between the two of them they're not supporting a team they're not supporting a budget line they're they're trying to change a cause that they care about they're trying to achieve something that usually is deeply personal to them because of a life experience so they want to be able to campaign for it over here they want to be able to digitally um, engage, mobilize, whatever you want to call it. They might want to give money over here. They might also want to be accessing your services at the same time for them or a friend or family. So all the work, all the ex really exciting work that we do and others is about trying to build those relationships across those teams in organizations. So that again, going all the way back to the people stuff, the individual people within those teams trust each other so that they can then deliver those more connected uh, supporter journeys. Because again, it, it's so easy to think of it as processes and tools that's going to make that happen. But if Jill in policy doesn't trust Gita in fundraising, it's not going to matter what the insight says or what the supporters think uh, need. They're just not going to make it happen. So you've got to focus on, again, those personal relationships internally, that trust, that psychological safety that you need to create between people in order for those better ideas to come about. Jill in policy really needs to sort that out, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah. Can, I just come, can I just come back to your first point there, James, in regards to kind of insights and analytics and, and talking to your audience? It feels such common sense to say that, right? Like, you know, and, and I'm sure we'd all take away from this and, and I'd go back into my day-to-day -day role and I'd go, oh, yeah, we, we should be doing more of that, but we don't. And I'm sure James can do that. I'm, you know, maybe you can't, but because it's part of your what you're talking to people about. But I guess I'm just for someone again listening who's thinking about that and saying, yes, that makes sense. If we were to do more of that and speak to our audiences and understand where where their attention is and what 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 we can derive from their feedback, then we'd maybe be able to kind of set a path to success. Why is that not as easy as it sounds? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think sometimes it can. It's intimidating for some people to speak to someone they don't know. I mean, like, ultimately, that's what you're asking someone to do. Like a piece of user research, you put lots of safety nets around it in the process to make sure it is a nice and safe, equitable conversation. But you're having to enter into almost a journalistic conversation, which for gents who run a podcast probably doesn't feel that scary. But for a lot of people who haven't had that training or that experience can can absolutely be an intimidating it certainly was for me you know the first time i was running user testing in you know we had a, a user testing lab down in city city university for CIUK. that's a scary environment like you know it, you're performing you are in a situation where you can can almost cause harm by asking the wrong question you can certainly mm -hmm. cause offense 
that is what's seen as a high risk scenario. So often people outsource it into into agencies and other places like that, and you know, very happy to do so. But I think it it all comes down to practice and building of confidence. And you know, so you know, how do you start? Start internally. Start by testing your own um, website with people in your team. Like it's it's not good insight, but at least you're practicing the kind of process that you would go through. Then start with people who are a little bit closer to you you know if you've got fundraising or community groups or whatever it might be start with them so it feels a little bit safe and kind of work yourself out from there it it is absolutely a skill that anyone can learn there are some people with natural uh, experiences or pretenses towards it but overall everyone everyone can pick it up and i really i, I do think it's important that they do it and it's it's easy to say oh i haven't got time for that but really it's because people aren't prioritizing that time to do that mm. that's just not true it's just that they don't they think it's hard so they don't it well, sorry no, it is hard so they don't want to spend the effort in making it happen but it's it's the easy thing easiest thing in the world once you get get a hang of it and then you can sit in a room with a couple of supporters once every couple of weeks or whatever it might be and just have a conversation all the all the vast majority of the work that we do in that area you know you've got prompts you know you start with a let's have a look at this website and just tell me what you feel. Tell me what you go and have a look at. Tell me what's working for you. What's not. What, how does it make you think? What does it make you think? Where would you go next? You know, there's very standardized questions about this kind of stuff. And it's just completely always completely revealing whether it is someone at a director or CEO level or someone, you know, right on the ground delivering products and services. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's your key takeaway from this episode then. That's uh, and we, I'm aware we only have you for another 10 minutes and we have a big subject still to cover. Uh, which you know Kenneth and I love a side hustle but we are big fans of the side hustle you have at least two going on here uh, the first of which is vinylized can you tell us a little bit about that yeah well so Craig the aforementioned man in the gorilla costume is uh, far cooler than I and carried on his career into the music business and works for a record label and a couple of other things so he him and me set that up like years ago like maybe six or seven years ago just saw an interesting kind of opportunity he had lots of contacts in the music business like lots of artists and people who didn't have enough money to set, press a record like you know it cost thousands of pounds really to press a record and so yeah again obvious use for the internet and kind of social media and all the rest of it connect people up and and allow them to crowdfund it and then send it off to them so you know we, we don't press loads of records but it's always it, you know it, it's uh, a labor of love as opposed to anything that it, i don't think it even comes under the side hustle thing anymore Look, normally it's just something that's annoying for my wife as i have uh, <laughs> records around the house that have been sent back from sweden because of a customs charge or something like that um <laughs> it's good fun it's it, it's nice to try out these things and at the time it was an interesting piece of technology that not loads of people had kind of put together. So it was just like, we were just testing it out really to see if it worked. I, I love that Craig has reappeared on the show for stars. <laughs> uh, that's a brilliant callback to the beginning of the show. Excellent stuff. And secondly, it's good to have that stuff. It's good to have the hobby, especially at the moment where we are moving towards people working <laughs> from home. It's easy to keep going, to have a hobby and to do something else. And just use some other skills and try other stuff and see what yeah. works, right? It's, okay. it's good fun. I'm very yeah. lucky to have the time, have been very lucky to have the time and space to be able to do it. Plenty wouldn't be able to. So, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Come on to the other side hustle that you mentioned right at the start yeah. is about potentially taking on a community project with a pub. Yeah. I mean, that's combining two passions together, isn't it, James? Beer and socialising with your mate? 
Yeah, absolutely. And a little bit of community value for thrown in as well. Yeah, so yeah. it's interesting. Like, um, a client of ours is an organization called Locality, who are all about kind of local community businesses, local community groups. And actually through a lot of the content I've seen them create, I've really begun to understand just how valuable like resilient communities are and just how easy it is to let communities kind of wither on the vine and not let people meet each other and just not connect with, with people around them. Um, you know, I'm very lucky. I've got a couple of kids. I naturally meet people in lots of different environments. You know, they're still young. They haven't got to school yet. I suspect it's going to increase. But there's plenty, plenty of people who don't have that. There's plenty of people who, you know, society just doesn't focus on in the same way that um, other, part, other people are. So, yeah, I, I'd say like resilient communities is something I really, really believe in. There recently a local a pub in Greenwich um, called the Star and Garter. It was classified a couple of years ago as what's called an asset of community value that basically means if and when someone wants to sell it, they have to put out a notice for a community group to have basically first dibs on putting together a bid for it. They can't just sell it off to a property developer. And so, yeah, me and a couple of folks noticed this on a Facebook group like a week ago and have set up a limited company that doesn't uh, distribute profits. And we've now expressed and uh, put together an expression of interest, which means there's a moratorium on it, which means basically we've got six months to pull together a business plan and funding to try and buy or at least run the pub for a couple of years. So the idea for me is that it doesn't just reopen as frankly, are quite dingy, not very inclusive and um, yeah, a little bit stabby pub and much more of a hub of the community where, you know, I think there'd be loads of opportunities to support, say, young, uh, young parents or, you know, young uh, single moms who are trying to get back into work with a co-working space, which is, you know, uh, prioritized for them. It's got a kitchen, so we could potentially look at making use of food waste to create some kind of community kitchen in there having, you know, function rooms that are available for community groups, all of that kind of stuff. There's so many ideas. There's so many things that you can do with a, a hub of the community that just happens to serve beer at certain times of the day. I, that's, for me, what's really exciting about it. Whether the rest of the community are excited about it, I don't know. We're putting together, like, questionnaires and surveys uh, at the moment. But it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's something I, I quite like. It's kind of like a service design challenge in lots of ways, and it's hopefully going to, end up um, providing something back for like an area that I really care about. But um, yeah, we'll see. I'll, I'll let you, I'll keep you updated. I'm, I'm part of a WhatsApp group that is a group of South East London fundraisers. Um, and we are looking for our next venue, potentially before it becomes a bit too, a bit less stabby. Um, so maybe we'll head down there and check it out. Yeah, Sounds well. like the perfect location. I'll let you know how we get on. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, great. <laughs> it's amazing. I think, and you said, James, you know, you, your principles that you you take into service design when you're, talking, when you're working with your clients. And I mean, the user research part sounds like it's going to be a massive part of that project as we just to, to, to amplify what you've just said. No, it sounds, sounds brilliant. And I can already see your passion to say it was only in the last week that it's all kind of started going. You certainly sound like you've, you've had to get to grips with it pretty quickly. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. I, I love starting things um, and I'm very lucky to be surrounded by people in my business life that love finishing things. So <laughs> I'm I can pull together a nice diverse group of people, group of expertise to do the same with Star and Garter. But You'll be handing out leaflets outside before before no time. No doubt. Yeah, I think sure. was what I was doing just before this was making a paper questionnaire to print out and put through people's doors. So, uh, yeah, it'd be great fun. 
Brilliant. Well, look, James, it sounds like that's a good note to finish it on as well, but we're not going to let you go quick quite away. We have um, some quick fire questions that we just put in at the end of the podcast. So I hope you don't mind. We'll jump into them. If you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20 year old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Um, uh, take a bit more time over stuff. Like it, you don't have to bounce to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. There's been benefits of it, but I just think that, yeah, sometimes focusing on things a little bit more, being a bit more mindful about stuff can be, yeah, can be a real strength that I've, it's taken me till now to learn, really. Finishing things as well as starting them. Also that, yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, could you tell us about one life hack, a productivity tool, a habit, perhaps a skill that you have taught yourself recently you think everybody needs to know about? Um, I mean, I'm sure others will say it, but Trello just runs all parts of my life as a to-do list. There is an epic Trello board already for the Star and Garter, which I haven't even showed anybody else because, you know, <laughs> I don't think they're going to be interested in it. But for me, it really just helps keep everything in order. And it's the only way that I found that I can keep my inbox at zero. So if there's anything to do, you can get it out of the inbox into Trello. And it yeah, just makes my life a lot easier. Wow. Excellent. Okay. Final one for you is a podcast that focuses around people doing more good. What's your favorite story or inspiring individual you've met on your journey or recently who has done something good for others? Um, I mean, I've already mentioned her, but I, it's just well worth mentioning again. Tess Cooper and say a collaborative future. They, she, so collaborative future was set up as a way to get young people who who find it hard to get into um, employment into employment. So she has run kind of these um, cohorts of young people, either focused around a particular skill like design, or just generally, you know, people who are struggling to get into employment, and has found you know, jobs for all of them has made such a difference in their lives. Again, a lot of these folks are people who may struggle to get into certain industries or whatever. And every single person I've met that she has been involved with has sung nothing but the highest of praises for her. So yeah, she is a constant inspiration to us and what we do. And we're just, yeah, she helps us be better at it. So yeah, she's by far the most inspiring person I get to work with. Amazing. Sounds good. We'll have to look her up and invite her on. Um, James, thank you very much for that. Really appreciate it. Great to hear your insight and your story. Um, I'm sure people will find it. There's lots of little bits of information in there that will be good to take away. As I always ask to James, any final thoughts? Uh, James Wright, before we just, wrap it up. Just that we need to do some user research, don't we? We desperately need to do some. <laughs> we need some user research. We need a Trello board. Yeah. Um, we need to find a pub that we yeah. can start as a community pod project and call it the Do More Good Pub. Yeah, you're on. And then we need to certify that as a B Corp somehow. Ab- as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We can have that done by next week. We'll be all good. All right. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. Thank you. Take Cheers. Care. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all, and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.